Um, Colossians 3, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Colossians. Uh, We should be wrapping this up in the next few weeks. Uh, And then after this, I had said that I had uh, an inkling to go into the book of 1 Timothy. The Lord has changed that. (laughs) We're going to actually go into the book of Genesis. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 11 after this sermon series. So buckle down and get ready to hear some Old Testament. Uh, If you have not been reading anything in the Bible, I would encourage you Continue to read through the letter of Colossians week in and week out as we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for the messages on Sunday, but also start to look forward to reading Colossians 1 through 11 uh, on your own time or with other people in the church uh, so that you can start to prepare your mind uh, for what we are going to study through together. Uh, As we come to Colossians this morning, the, the big theme of the book of Colossians has been that we are alive in Christ. And so this church faced messages from false teachers who were telling them that the beginning of their salvation in Christ was good, but that they needed something more to grow in their depth and maturity. And Paul proclaims that this is false news. So in chapter 1, he presents to them uh, his desire to reach them, to help them to grow in maturity in the Lord, uh, to warn them and to teach them so that they may follow Jesus and honor him in their lives. In chapter 2, we begin to see Paul lays out three warnings for this Colossian church in which he tells them to not be taken captive by human philosophy and empty deceit. That was the first warning. Do not be taken captive by false teaching. The second was do not let anyone judge you based on false teaching. And the third, do not let them condemn you through this false teaching. And Paul gives this beautiful illustration in which we see in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. So then, as you have received Christ, continue to live in Him, being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So the mark of a Christian is someone who has started their walk in Christ and continues their walk in Christ. And so we gave this illustration a few weeks back of a tree. You see a tree outside. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, We can really uh, enjoy their presence. We can enjoy their shade. They have many purposes for us. But the big beauty of what we see in trees, like the tree that's outside of the church, it's tall, it's full of leaves and acorns in the fall. David really loves those acorns. He rakes them week in and week out and enjoys that practice. Uh, But the, the growth of that tree that we see on the surface really comes because of its root system. The tree is nourished by its roots. And so we, as Christians, the growth that we experience, the growth that we see outwardly, really comes from the root system that we have in Christ. If we're not connected to the root, then we will not be nourished and fed, and our leaves will wither and we will die away. So we need to be connected to Christ in order to grow. So just as we began in Christ, we continue in Christ, and we see this growth. And then he describes Christians as those who are established in the faith and that are overflowing with gratitude. So Christians are those people who are established, they're anchored in their faith, the teaching of the scriptures. They are people who continue to come back to the word of God and rely on the word of God to teach them and lead them and guide them and give them life. And they are also those who overflow with gratitude. So this morning we can come to Uh, church, and we can be encouraged because as God's people, we have a good Savior. 
He is good and faithful to us. He has started a work in us. He's continuing that work, and he will complete that work at his return. But we can also celebrate because we have many things to be thankful for. The freedom of worship. The freedom that we have to worship together. The freedom that we have to open a copy of God's Word and hear His teaching. To hear what it is that He has instructed His people in. We can celebrate these things. So really, these warnings come because there is a false sense of religiosity that exists within the Colossian church. Uh, You need more than Jesus. And, And so this morning, I was reminded of a movie that I've watched many times uh, that maybe some of you have seen before. It's called Catch Me If You Can. Anybody seen that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Uh, if you're thinking the Titanic, no, this is not the boat thing. This is the plane thing, right? So uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he, he, in this movie, he becomes someone who uh, understands that, that he wants a rich life and all of the, the fame and wealth that can come with materials. And so he uh, is a flight attendant, and he travels from place to place, and he learns how to forge checks. So he continues to write these fake checks and get into these fancy hotels and buy these fancy cars and these fancy suits and, and have the women that he enjoys. And eventually, the end of the movie comes when the CIA figures out what he's been doing and they nail him and they, ro- they put him into jail. He was caught in his act. And so as I thought through this, this movie this morning, I thought of the Colossian church because often they presented a false or a fake sense of religiosity. This fake religiosity tells us that if we do these things, if we follow these rules that are outside of the gospel, that are extra to the gospel, then we will be set up as people who are religiously superior or religiously elite. And truly, Paul continues to say that the gospel is not fake in ways that we say, do these things, act this way, and honor man. It's not cheap talk that is not followed up by action. The real gospel tells us that Christ has done something for us. In the gospel, Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say, act these ways and then come to me. He says, come to me as you are. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the gospel, Jesus performs the act that we need to be truly transformed. He dies on the cross in our place. He's buried, and he raises from the grave to take us from death into life. We experience salvation through his work and in our action of repentance and faith. So the goodness of the gospel tells us that we go to Jesus and we find rest. That we go to Jesus and we see transformation. And this leads to a life that honors God. It's belief that spurs into action, not action that spurs into belief. And so what we're going to see here is Paul is transitioning in Colossians chapter 3 from warning all of these Colossians of the false teaching to now instructing them to continue in the doctrinal truth that they've heard, but to grow legs and see practice. So as they grow in practice, Paul is going to instruct them in five different relationships throughout Colossians 3 and Colossians 4. And the primary relationship that we're going to see this morning is the relationship of the Christian to Christ. So if we do not have Jesus right, if we are not right with Jesus, all of the other relationships that we'll see in Colossians 
will fail. So as Christians, we are to maintain our relationship with Christ by following the four imperatives that we'll see in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please follow along as I read from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Friends, this is the word of God for us this morning. Thanks be to God. So there are four imperatives that we see as we maintain a relationship with Christ. And what I mean by imperative is a sense of a command, uh, an instruction for us, an exhortation. So as Paul continues in Colossians 3 into Colossians 4, we're going to continue to see he's building this, this case of exhortation for this church. He's instructing them, he's warning them, he's imploring them to follow Jesus and to continue to see his work on display through, uh, through Christ. And so the first piece of instruction that he gives us is to seek the things above. This is verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So there is a a sense in which, as we talk about the, the theme of Colossians, as we are alive in Christ, we talked about that as the theological term, union with Christ. We are united to Christ. As we're united to Him through repentance and faith, we are now established with Him, in a way that goes beyond justification, but continues in this process of growing and walking with the Lord. So at the beginning of our salvation, when we trust in Jesus by faith and repentance, we are justified, which means we are now legally seen as right or righteous before God. And that establishes our standing so that no longer do we stand in our own sense of righteousness, because the Bible tells us that we will fall short, correct? This is the message of Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our own righteousness, we fall short, but in Christ's righteousness, we are now seen as worthy. Jesus has paid our debt. He has set the court clear so that we can be with God. But in union with Christ, we don't just have our slate cleaned. We continue to be united to him in such a way that God continuously sees us in the lens and light of Jesus. So we're united to Jesus. We're not just justified by him. We are united to him so that now we can stand in Christ. As the Bible continues to say again and again through the New Testament, those that are Christians are in Christ. Our identity, our works, our righteousness, our hope, our salvation... They are in Christ. They are found in Christ. And this is what Paul is exposing here in this text. So he first 
reminds them of the reunion by saying this, uh, this key phrase, you have been raised with Christ. We describe the act of salvation as, uh, is God saving us from death into life? So as we've been raised with Christ, we can think of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. But this isn't exactly what Paul has on display here. He actually has something further in the ascension of Christ. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, This is what we see in the picture of Acts chapter 1. After Jesus' resurrection, as he has spent time with the disciples, as he has exposed his resurrected, glorified body before them, as he has continued to instruct them, and his instruction was, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. He will guide you and lead you in truth. As he spent that precious time with them, and then he was ascended, he walked into the clouds of glory, and he was with the Lord. So we worship a God who is no longer incarnated in the sense that he is flesh among us, we worship him because he is now seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in authority. He has an authoritative role to play, and he will come again as a king who will establish the kingdom and bring back restoration. So, as we seek the things above, we are seeking Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. We are seeking His return. We are seeking Him as the ascended Lord of glory who holds power and authority and divinity in such a way that it brings restoration. And this is the idea of devotion. If you have been raised with Christ, we were once dead. One commentator puts it this way. From death to life, the distinctive mark of the new faith is that in the old accustomed sense of the word, it is not religion at all. It is not a human system linked to earthly sanctuaries or regulations and rites. It has no essential center of authority in this world, for its center is the heavenly Christ. Neither is it an exercise in interior spirituality or mysticism or visionary enthusiasm. We've been set free from such subjectivism. The Christian is simply a man who is granted a relationship with the exalted Christ at God's right hand. This relationship he is to vigorously pursue and develop by seeking the things above. So we are to vigorously pursue God. This is not just a sense in which we say seek as in desire, but seek with everything that you have. Run to Jesus. Run vigorously after him. Try to pursue him. And see who he is, what he is like, what he has done. And as we think of the word seek, often in in terms of what we can put into our modern Christianity, we have seen churches approach uh, their their work of ministry in in a way that can be described as seeker sensitivity. Have you ever heard of a a seeker sensitive church? Is this a terminology that anybody is familiar with? Okay, so seeker sensitive church is basically what can we do to be like the world, but bring them the message of Jesus so that people will feel comfortable to come and then search for Jesus in this place. So we need to see this idea of seeker-sensitive based in what God calls his pursuit of people through the Bible. So seeker-sensitive churches did not exist in the first century. Seeker-sensitive churches you will not find in the New Testament. But what you will find 
is the story of God's pursuit over man. See, the seeker-sensitive church says, here's our way of letting people search for God. But what the Bible says is that we don't search for God, but God searches for us. God runs after us like the sheep who has gone astray. He, he runs to us after our sin, and he, he runs to us to develop a relationship of righteousness. In the seeker-sensitive church, we are constantly hiding from God. Genesis 3, as, as sin was exposed, as Adam and Eve were unrighteous before the Lord, they hid from God because of their sin. But ever since Genesis 3, all the way to where we stand now reading Colossians, as people have tried to hide from God, He has run after them through Jesus. He has run after them in such a way that He exposes His desire to save people. If anyone is searching for God, it's because God has already started a work. He is running after His people. He's seeking them. He was looking for them. He's finding them. He's searching for them. He wants to save them. He wants community with them. And once somebody responds to the gospel and that process of regeneration has started, as the Holy Spirit revives someone's dead heart and brings them to life and shows them the truth of the gospel, again they're reminded that in the gospel... They cannot search after God. They can't seek something that will bring them salvation. They have to receive salvation. They receive it through the gift of Christ on the cross. And so union with Christ brings us our salvation. It brings us this hope that as God continues to run after his people, that we're not too far out of his reach. That he can grab us from the edge of the cliff and pull us to himself and hold us because we are one with Christ. And union represents not just the, the initial aspect of entering into God's presence, it represents the continued aspect of entering into God's presence. As we are in Christ, we continue to come to him who is seated at the right hand of God and have access to the presence of God. But the key to all of these things, the key to seeking Jesus, is holding fast. Uh, how many of you know of a band called Sovereign Grace? Darn. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's a great song I want you to write down, think of, to listen to this week, called He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a song in which... Uh, the believers that have written this, they look to Jesus and they're reminded of how Jesus holds us. He holds us through the life storms. He holds us through uh, the joy of life. He continues to hold us with God and he continues to, to secure us in our sense of hope and salvation. He holds us as we are with him. So first, we are to seek the things above. Friends, run after Jesus Seek him not just as the Savior from your sin, but as the ascended Lord who is returning again. Seek the restoration that he will bring. Run to him in devotion. And as we we pursue him in devotion, I think of men's Bible study this past week, uh, one of the best questions that you can ask as you approach the scriptures is not what do I want this to say, but what does the text say? 
What does God say here? Our, our, our pursuit of Scripture, our pursuit of knowing God needs to be a pursuit in which we say, God, who are you and what do you like and what is your message? Not a pursuit of, okay, what am I looking for God to be? Run to the Scriptures with an open heart. Run to the Scriptures and let them speak into your life in such a way that you see the glory of God displayed through His Word. Seek the things above. The second imperative comes in verses 2 through 4. This builds on the first imperative. As we seek the things above, we are to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is the aspect of study and growth. So as he says, set your minds on the things above, this is not a call to, um, to stir up your affection. This is not a call to say, this is how I feel. This is a call of the renewal of your mind. As Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he said that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The renewal of our mind. So there's always something about knowing with worshiping. Worshiping isn't just something that we feel. Worship is something we know. There's a beauty of being able to say, because of what we know, we then feel secure. Because of what we know, we then feel joy. Because of what we know, we then feel conviction over sin. But it all starts in a sense in which worship is called as the renewal of our mind. Because what we often see is that the battle of sin begins here and not just in what we walk out. It begins in what is in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus spoke in the Gospels and he said that if somebody acts in adultery, if he looks upon another person with lust, that he has already committed adultery. That if he desires and hates his brother, that he's already committed murder. This was not the outward action. This was a perception that began in his mind. So as we set our things on, uh, or set our minds on things above, we're called to not just renew our affection, but to renew our mind with a true understanding of Christ and his will for our discernment. One of the greatest gifts that can happen in the Christian's life is that God would give them the gift of discernment. To be able to say, this is what is true, this is what is not true. And clearly, the Colossian church, if they had had a gift of discernment, would be able to weigh these false teachings out and say, this is true, this is not true. But nonetheless, Paul writes to them and encourages them and exhorts them. So if you're feeling, man, I don't know what false teaching is this morning, there's good news, you're in good company. Don't worry, Paul will speak. God will speak through Paul to us and tell us here rest in Christ. But the renewal of our mind is really set on the the clauses of verses 3 and 4. As we set our minds on the things above and not on the earthly things, we need to be reminded that all of this is capable or possible for us because we have died. We have died to our old life and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
So first, we are hidden in Christ with God. The old life. Again, here's a picture of the gospel, friends. Again, celebrate the truth of the gospel. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And in Christ, we've been made alive. And now, our life is hidden with Christ in God. So we can have a renewed mind because we are now with Him in God. We have the presence, the access through Christ to see the glory and goodness of God. And then verse 4 tells us, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And this is a beautiful picture, a beautiful kind of wrap through of these first four verses where He tells them that a day is coming when Christ will be revealed. A day is coming when we will see transformation completed. A day is coming when His glory will come. And we will sing. We'll sing like the hymn, It Is Well. With our souls, because our soul rests in Christ. We'll sing like that song, You Have Saved My Soul. Because we are hidden with Christ in God. And His glory will appear. And so, when He appears, this will astonish men. The whole world will be taken back by the appearance and glory of Christ. But hear this too. As Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So Christ will come and it will astonish men. They will never see the glory of God revealed again like the second coming of Christ. But they'll never see anything, humanly speaking, like also the glory of Christ revealed in His people. The church universal will be exposed with Christ. And so not only will the world see the risen, glorified, ascended, warrior king Jesus, they will see His people united to Him. There's been some error that has happened through church history. Church history has uh, often, at times, people have misunderstood this verse to say that Christ, as he's brought down into heaven, that, uh, that he becomes incarnate through the church. And what they're saying there is that uh, the church is teaching and the church itself becomes Christ. Uh, we can see Catholicism here. Uh, this is not true. This is not true. We are not the incarnated Christ. Christ, when he appears in his flesh, is the incarnated Christ. We do not bring him. But we experience life in Christ. We experience life in Christ because we're hidden in him. And this life is brought together in the five relationships that Paul will show here in Colossians 3 and 4. First, the Christian with Christ. The second, the Christian with the church. Christian with their family. Christian with work and Christian with outsiders. We'll see life experienced through Christ in these relationships. The glory of Christ revealed as we find life in Him. And Paul's concern for the church here is that they find joy. That they would find joy knowing that there's hope to come. That there's restoration that will happen through the person of Jesus. 
I love this quote. This is from another commentator. He says, The more we set our minds to consider the things above, the firmer the ground beneath our feet. The more we set our minds to consider the things above, the more and the firmer the ground beneath our feet. So we are to devote our lives to Christ by seeking Him. Seeking Him as the ascended Lord. We are to set our minds on the things above. If we want to know the things above, we need to know what Jesus has said. This is why we continue to be a Bible people. What has God said? What has He done? What is He like? This is why the church gathers. We gather under this pulpit, under the teaching of the Word. So that we might hear what it is that God has instructed for His people from what He has said. This is not an hour of time spent with Jordan to hear about his interest for the week. This is a time in which we come as the people of God to be instructed by God. This is not for our entertainment. This is for our good. And the moment it becomes about entertainment and it doesn't become about the word, the moment you kick the guy behind the pulpit off. So first, seek God. Devote your life to Him. Second, set your mind on the things of God. Study what it is that God has said and see growth. And third, kill sin. Kill sin. Verses 5 and 6, Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. So his third imperative here is that as we seek Christ, as we set our minds on things above, we need to kill sin. And you should, you've probably heard me speak of John Owen before, but John Owen was one who wrote on the mortification of sin. He said, as you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So the Christian is one who needs to put to death the former life, the old life that we had, in our sinfulness. This is a call of self-examination, friends. Um, and, and there are just there are some implications that I'd like to speak about as we look at the idea of killing sin. This is not uh, a moment for us to, to just look and say, okay, hey, let's, let's talk about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, idolatry. Diso- let's, let's put this in the frame of disobedience. Implications of disobedience. Implications of what the gospel says. Of what God's word says to the Christian. Here's implication number one. If what God says about sin is true, then we will find that there's security in knowing Christ. But what we also will find on the flip side of that coin is that as if we do not pursue Christ, that outside of Christianity, there is no security in righteousness or unrighteousness. It doesn't exist. Implication number two is that the teaching about the extent of the evil heart of the human is always clear from Scripture. Scripture continues again and again to tell us that the heart is deceitful, that it is full of wickedness outside of Christ, that our nature is a sin nature, that we 
stand in the transgression of Adam. This is Romans 4, 5, and 6, friends. The first Adam, his sin implicated our sin. It transferred to us a state, a nature in which we were separated from God in sinfulness. And the reality is again and again that in a fallen, broken world that's rebellious against God, the human heart will continue to be evil. The third implication is what Paul says here is he says, put to death these things. This is a practical teaching. This is not just a teaching in which we say, okay, hey, here are some nice things that are really complex. Put to death sin. How do we put to death sin? Seeking Christ, setting our minds on the things above. As we start those pursuits, we will be able to deny sin and run to Jesus. Seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. Third, you will see that you will be able to kill sin and have victory in Christ. And there's always an incentive. This is implication number four. As we kill sin, there's always an incentive for the Christian. If we deny sin, if we run to Jesus, if we say no to these things, we will experience life in Him. There's always an incentive. And the problem that exists in our killing of sin, our mortification of sin, isn't that we don't know. It's that we don't desire to kill it. Hear that again. The the problem that exists for humans as we try to kill sin, as believers, it's not that we don't know. We can know what not to do. We can know what not to be. We can know who Jesus is. It's do we have the desire to run in obedience? It's that great hymn, man, my father-in-law's favorite hymn ever, is Trust and Obey. Does anybody know the words that? Trust and obey, for there's no other way, right? To be happy in Jesus than trust and obey. As we obey God, as we trust in Him, as we walk with Him, we will be able to kill sin. This is practical. There's an incentive. And the last is that what Paul says here, the ethical teaching of the Christian It's never out of date. If you look at this list, sexual immorality still exists, friends. Impurity still exists. Lust, greed, evil desire, disobedience. The writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he says, there's nothing new under the sun. So we are to set... We're to seek the things above. We're to set our mind on things above. We're to kill sin. And then lastly, the fourth imperative of this passage is we are to put away our previous life. Verses 7 and 8. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following anger and wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. So we need to, one, challenge the old life, And two, change the old life. So how do we challenge the old life, the old way of thinking? What Paul is saying to these Colossian believers, in verse 7 especially, we were once walking in these things when we were living in them. But in verse 8, he tells us that something happened. 
he calls us to put away these things because of the reality of verses 1 through, five, or 1 through 6. We have been given new authority in Christ. So the authority of Christ is therefore to help the Christian to deal with the authority of life that they exist in. What is primary? What God has to say or what man has to say? What drives the culture? God's instruction? Man's instruction. So they're to challenge these things. So that when something does not align with the principles of the word in our life, aka in authority or in culture, we are to stand not on the authority of man, but the authority of Christ. Our life is hidden with him in God. The second, we're to change the old life. So we cannot continue to walk in sin, right? Romans 6, Romans 6, 1. Should we continue in sin that grace would abound? By no means, right? That, that Greek terminology right there is meganoita. As he says meganoita, this isn't just a, uh, a, a sense in which he says no. He's saying no. By no means can you continue in that. If you continue in that, it will lead you to death. Sin brought death. But Christ has brought life. So as we pursue Jesus, we will see that our life is changing. We're saying no to sin. We're embracing the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word. So there are just two things to hear about change, friends. One, I want you to know change is scary, right? Uh, maybe I have three things. So first, change is scary. We'll put that one there. I understand that weight. Uh, I never thought that I'd be one to be hesitant of change. But change is scary because it tells us that there's a cost. And that cost might be risky on the front, but does it bring us reward in the long haul? That's a good question for us to ask. Change is scary. But the second reality of change is that change is constant. Change is constant for the believer. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Friends, hear that again. Change is constant. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If we continue in sin, that has to change. It's not a matter of if, it does. So we have to kill that. Which means that constantly we need to continue to examine our hearts and our lives and say, are we putting these things away and are we running to Jesus? That's a constant aspect. That's a daily aspect. And third, change is healthy. Organisms that do not change die. Organisms that do not change die. But things that do change often find health. They often find health. Now, this doesn't always mean that every case is going to be like that. Not every aspect of change can be good. right? We have to, we have to put a qualifier to change. And when I say change, I'm not saying change for the sake of philosophy. I'm not saying change for the sake of judgment or condemnation. I'm saying change based on biblical principle 
a biblical drive. So, as we look at those things, we can then ask ourselves, as a church, are we seeking the things above? Are we seeking the risen Christ, the ascended Lord, who holds authority? Is Jesus the authority in the church? What does Jesus say about authority in the church? What does he say about the structure and the things in the ministry? Second, set your mind on the things above. What are we running to? What instructs us? What guides us? What helps us grow? Praise God. I'm convinced it's the word. Third, are we killing sin? Are we examining that sin? Are we putting away the precious life? And I want to close by encouraging you, if you... Had not, uh, if you do not receive our weekly emails, this past week, totally a work of the Lord, did not know that, I would, that the article I was going to post would line right up with our message, but it, it truly does. The article of, uh, of the week from this past week for Hebrew Church of Hope was written by a guy named John Lee, who's a church member, and it was an article about repentance. And the article was entitled, Repentance is uh, always awkward, sometimes costly, but absolutely worth it. And so as we think about repentance, repentance is not just something that we think of in the initial stage of our salvation. It's something that we continue in as a church, continue in as Christians. And there's some realities with that. If you've ever been in a place where you've had to repent, and especially when it's with another brother or sister, it's definitely awkward, right? Anybody been there before? Okay, I've definitely been there. I've had to repent of my own stupidity and say, I'm sorry, I was acting in total anger or misjudgment or in my own righteousness. Uh, that was awkward and costly, but it was absolutely worth it. And so maybe one takeaway that you can have for this week is to consider your sin. Consider your relationships. Consider what it is that we do as a church, how we do it, why we do it. And to really consider repentance. Uh, Repentance isn't just something that's needed for the new Christian. It's something that's needed for the established Christian. It's something needed for pastors and elders and church members and church attenders. Repentance is something that we, we constantly need. Because we, on this side of heaven are being worked on by Jesus to become like him. So until we reach that stage of glorification where we're with Jesus, we still need repentance and work to be done in our hearts and in our lives and in our ministries. Um, so maybe, maybe you consider the fivefold relationships of Colossians 3 and 4. Do I need to repent to Christ because I have not set my mind on things above. I've not sought after him. Maybe it's in the relationship of the Christian and the church. I have not been about the unity of my church. I have not sought the unity of the church. I have not sought what was best for everyone else above myself. Maybe you need to seek repentance in your family. Maybe with your spouse or with your children. I spoke out of anger. I did not reflect Christ. I did not lead well. 
or I was being stubborn and I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. Repent of those things. Maybe repenting for how you display yourself at work. Are you an ambassador for Christ or are you a hindrance to Christ in the workplace? Maybe lastly, we need to repent of how we have looked at outsiders, those who do not know the Lord. Have we continued to cast judgment upon them without reaching them with the message of the gospel? Have we not embraced them and told them, here is who Jesus is, here is good news. Repent and believe, friend. Those might just be some practical steps for you this week, but friends, hear this. Hear again the good news of Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Praise God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that Paul had for these believers. I pray that you would help us to embrace Christ fully this week. God, and as I pray that, I, I recognize that that might not have even been in good words. God, help us to run after Jesus so that we would embrace him this week. God, help us to seek him. Help us to set our mind on things above. And as we do that, help us to kill sin and help us to put away the former life. In Jesus' name, amen.